Last week, Morgan walked us through uh, most of chapter 4. Tonight, what I'm going to do is we're going to finish it off and move into the first two verses of chapter 5 to kind of complete the thought. There's kind of an unfortunate chapter break in our Bible where really the thought continues into chapter 5, the, verse, the first two verses. And tonight I'm going to actually read quite a bit of the text of chapter 4 because I thought the best way to review it was to kind of think through it and look at it from a slightly different lens and lead into tonight. I'm going to start in, in verse 11 in just a moment, but I want to read you something. A lot of what Paul is talking about and what we were covering last week as Morgan walked us through it is really a focus on us learning the way of Christ, or more precisely, to learn Christ, to be taught Christ, to make Christ everything. And there's such an emphasis in these chapters on learning. I want to just point out this quote I found from Mark Knoll. He says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is there's not much of an evangelical mind. That's the true scandal. Or as one of the commentaries that we're using for this series says, superficial thought often reduces the gospel to banalities. How this happened in a faith that is focused on the mind and on truth is a mystery. But we are at a point where the whole educational enterprise among Christians needs to be rethought. We need schools that do not sacrifice academic standards, but at the same time do not find their respect by jettisoning faith commitments. And then he comments, education is not peripheral to the church's mission. It is the church's mission. That's a strong statement. I actually looked at that and wondered, is it an overstatement that the church's mission is education, not just a part of it or not just something that goes along with it? But as we go through these verses, I'm going to read through them in a moment, just to kind of refresh our memory. I want you to keep that focus on how often these words are about our mind and about what we're to be taught. We go back to Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. For what purpose? To equip his people for works of service. That was the purpose. And I said last week as I commented even from the back that, you know, so often we just want to hit the ground running. We just want to run right into it. We just want to act. And yet he's saying that Christ himself gave us these offices or these roles or these gifts, however way you look at it, so that we could be equipped. To what end? So that the body of Christ might be built up and become mature attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Mature believers. The mature body. How is that accomplished? Unity in faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And I like that Morgan last week pointed out that this knowledge is not just knowing facts about Christ, but actually knowing Christ. But how often do we think we know something, and really when you scratch the surface a little bit, we don't know very much. Here's an example I've been struggling with this week. I know some people that have been going through hard times, right? They're, they're all around us, especially in this economy. We can see people going around us all the time. And, I, and I've heard this phrase over and over that people almost say to themselves, almost to console themselves. They say, well, you know he's never going to give us more than we can handle. You heard that before? You know he's never going to give us any more than we can handle. 
Where is that found in Scripture? When we kind of know, when we think we know, I just feel like there's almost a disaster of faith waiting to happen in all these people's lives sometimes. Because the true statement in Scripture is, He's never going to allow us to be tempted more than we can handle. It's talking about sin and temptation. It doesn't say that we're, He's never going to give us more than we can handle. Tell that to Job. How about when the person like gets just a, a, an illness that just wrecks their body and they die? That's probably more than they could handle. Why is this knowledge so important? Yes, it's knowledge of Christ. It's knowing Christ in a personal and intimate way. But it's also knowing and being taught in a way that we can move to maturity so that these things don't trip us up where we don't trade the truth of the gospel for kind of like lesser versions, like summaries, like bumper sticker slogans that actually end up hurting us more than they help us. Because later on, we're stuck and we're struggling and we're asking everybody, I don't understand. I, I thought he wasn't going to give me more than I can handle, but I can't handle this. Like, we have to rethink what we're saying. Moving on to the other verses. If we become mature like this, if we go through this kind of knowledge and this unity, we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. That's exactly the kind of thing that I think we need more of. Being mature enough not to be tossed back and forth. Or to be able to recognize when someone says to you, like, he's not going to give me any more than I can handle. Go, there's something about that I think we need to talk about. Because I think we could get ourselves in trouble. Like, to be able to just look at it and say, I don't believe that you've understood that right. Instead, speaking truth in love, or as Morgan said, truthing in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. The focus on maturity again. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance. The ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Once again, focus on futility of thinking, darkened understanding, ignorance. It's all to do with the way that our mind works and our thinking. Notice that the ignorance... Where does it come from? They're separated from the life of God. Why? Because of ignorance. Where does ignorance come from, though? Because they're hardened hearts. It's almost like you could set it up as a formula. Separation from God. You ever feel that way? You ever feel distant? He's saying that in this case, don't be like the Gentiles who are separated from the life of God. Why? Because of ignorance. And where does the ignorance come from? From a hardened heart. It's almost like a refusal to work through it and get over that ignorance. Like the ignorance isn't just going to be taught away in this case. It requires our hearts to be open enough to receive it and to be able to move past it. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The tense there of this putting off and this putting on. You could read it in a number of ways, like it could happen once, but it's also kind of happening over and over. Maybe that's part of our transformation. The fact that we are constantly putting off that self, and at the same time, constantly living into that new self, but it also implies that it's kind of been done. We always have that tension of what's been done and what is going to ultimately be done. But look again at all the words that seem to reach our mind. Learned, taught, taught in the attitude of your minds. I keep raising these because I think it really is important when we're walking through these passages that we not forget what it is we're doing here, why it is we work so hard sometimes to peer into these scriptures and understand what's really behind them so that we are mature and that we live into this life that we have, especially this new life. Okay, so let's press forward and finish off chapter 4. I invite you to stop me at any time and give me your thoughts, although one of the things I'm fearful of tonight is because Paul is now going to turn around and give us the ethical teaching that comes out of everything he's been saying so far. He's going to say, therefore, just do the following things, and most of us probably won't have much of a quarrel with them. We'll think, yeah, that sounds right. So for a moment, just pause and think, not do I agree or disagree with these things, but maybe the better way to look at them tonight is, am I living these things? This is the paranesis, the ethical teaching. And he says, therefore... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Anyone disagree? Anyone think we should lie to one another? So the question is, are we going to really do that? Do we do that? Do we speak truthfully to one another? Yeah. Well, and the question comes up, like, how truthful do you want me to be? Like, when you ask me, am I okay? And I say, yeah, I'm doing great. Do you really want to know what's going on under there that I'm lying about so that you'll stop asking me about it? What about when you ask people and they just say fine or whatever? Answer your own question. Do you want to know what they're really going through? Or does it depend on the person? Or how does it work? That's a good question. I mean, I would like to say I want to be genuine with everyone and I'd like to say that I want to love everyone intentionally, but I think we all have our limits. But... Are they wrong for doing that, or are we wrong for not wanting to know? Which one is it? And I don't know that there's always an answer, because maybe in that context, like, it isn't really the right thing for them to have done that. But maybe more often than not, we really don't want to know, except for a very few people. Yeah. Is he speaking to the body of the church as neighbors? Because I think as a body in unity, falsehood should be non-existent, truthfulness should be evident. If he's speaking to everyone outside, I don't believe it. It's very interesting that you bring that up because it seems from the way that he's saying we are all members of one body that he is actually addressing people within the church, within the body. However, what I'd point out though is that even though he's giving this command to people within the church to be truthful with one another, there is nothing that limits it to the body, and certainly none of his teachings nor Jesus' teachings were ever limited in some way to just, hey, this only applies in the church and outside it doesn't apply. 
True. But then you go back to society norms. They wouldn't apply within the body of the church. Because you were walking in truth, you were walking in God's society, not in the world, not But how often do those norms apply? They apply all the time. Like, let's say you see somebody that is clearly doing something that you don't think they should be doing. Maybe it's even impacting them, right? I mean, all of a sudden we feel the societal norm not to intrude on them and say something because there's already a norm that is almost unspoken. The first one might be, it's none of your business, right? That's, I mean, that's a norm. Somebody, we've just created that, right? Or it's something like, you, you're not supposed to judge me, or who are you to judge me, right? We have all these things that can even prevent us from speaking truthfully. And by the way, he's even hinting that people are just not even being truthful, right? That they're not even being truthful, like, in other words, they're lying to one another. But we even have difficulty when we want to speak the truth, or going back to that idea of truthing in love. Like, we have a very hard time with that. Megan? I think that maybe there's kind of a spectrum. So I think that there's room to discern um, kind of how much to say. But I think the idea of just not being totally false doesn't have to mean that you bear it all. Right. So there still might be room for us to actually discern who we should be more open with and less. And that language is very intentional. The put off falsehood. He's comparing, right? We just heard, like, put off the old self, put on the new. And he's kind of echoing that same language, like put off falsehood and basically speak truthfully. Like put that on, be like that, because now we're in the be like this part. Jill. I think a lot of what we're talking about involves tact and gentleness more than it involves lying and telling the truth. I think sometimes if we're holding back from being honest with somebody about something, it's usually more because we don't want to be uncomfortable, not that we don't want to help somebody, but I think things like oh, I don't want to hang out with somebody, that's more, you can find a tough way to say, hey, can we do this kind of activity instead? And maybe if you really don't want to hang out with someone who is wanting to get to know you, that's an issue with you, and that's maybe not something we want to explore either. I think there's still an element of this which just talks about us being truthful. And I think that there's a lot of ways that we're not. For example, when we exaggerate who we are or what we've done, even things we've seen. It's very tempting to do that. It would be less than truthful, let me say, for me right now not to say that I have done that in my own life, and I know many of us in this room who do it, where we even filter so that people can see us certain ways, and that doesn't make sense if we really are one in the body. I still am sensitive to what Megan has talked about, about the difference between truthfulness and openness and maybe the discernment of who we are going to be completely open with and where that level is might differ for people. But when it comes to truthfulness, that's different. I mean, if you don't want to open up about certain things, fine. But if you're going to talk about them, the fact that we actually pepper them with falsehood often is probably part of this. That also might be the way we speak to one another in truth about things that should be truthfully stated. So there's a lot of implication to this, just this one line. It's very, very tempting for us to live in that kind of half-truth land, either editing or exaggerating, or outright fabricating, so that we can actually grease the wheels of social interaction between us and somehow feel like I'm okay. And he's saying, that's not the way the body of Christ is. And I don't think it stops there. I mean, Paul might say, 
you know, you can't hold people who are not members of the body to the same standard, but you, when you interact with them, should be held to that standard. This is not just for people who are in the body, dealing with people in the body. It's any time you're dealing with anyone. That's hard. Because I think we need to sit under it for a moment and realize, yeah, we don't do that much. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. What does that mean in your anger, do not sin? Isn't anger a sin? How is it that you can be angry and not sin? Or is that even what he's saying? That's one of those that I think we could like put on a bumper sticker somewhere and all misunderstand it and think it means something different. Is it a license to be angry? What, what's going on here? Yeah. I don't think anger is a sin in and of itself. It seems to be a human emotion. Uh, and that's not to say that emotions can't be sinful because that's another subject. But I don't think in and of itself... We saw an example of Jesus being very angry numerous times, right, with Pharisees and with temple collectors, you know, people at the temple in many situations. So anger in and of itself, I do not believe this is sin. Like, you can be angry at things, uh, and they can actually fuel right action. Uh, but it's usually a very fine line, I believe, also, that most of the time, and why Paul would say this is because I think most of the time when we're angry, we tend to sin because maybe it leads to hatred. Or maybe it causes us to be foolish or other things. So it's a very fine line and it usually does lead to sin. Okay. Ray? I'd like the answer comes maybe a little bit come a little bit more clear if we look on to the next verse. Don't let the sun go down where it's still anger and do not give the devil a foothold. The devil's foothold seems to be when that anger festers and sits and boils because the crazy things when they're really mad and when they hold grudges and you see a whole family split apart over stupid misunderstandings that just sit and boil and you know, conflicts in different countries that are bred from these really small and insignificant differences between two people groups. I think what this is saying is, I don't know that it's necessarily addressing whether or not anger is a sin in and of itself, but the things that can come of anger that's not dealt with are significant, and so it's like get rid of it from the beginning. Most people looking at this seem to point out that there is a concept of righteous anger, like being angry at injustice, being angry in the defense of others, but that's probably not the point he's trying to make here. Even though, as Morgan pointed out, Jesus exhibited, well, he said, like, you know, being angry with your brother is the same as killing him, but then later he showed that he could be angry about the right things in the right way and not sin. This is kind of like almost to say, when you get angry, do not sin. You could either read it as just maybe some anger is not sin, but maybe more even appropriately, like, you've already become angry, don't continue to sin. Don't let that lead you into more sin. And the idea here, I think as Ray pointed out, is that if you, if you can quickly deal with the issue, not even letting the sun go down on that anger, then you prevent further damage. And the devil gets this foothold. Where? In your life? In the church? Remember, we're all the body. So once it's in the body, the issue is around us all. There's really almost no personal issue that I'm just struggling with on my own. It seems that we're all struggling with it because one of us is in that way. That's what unity is. Okay. How are we angry? I mean, think of somebody right now that you have been recently angry with or are still angry with. Most of the time, we just kind of hope it evaporates, kind of like the fog just lifts over time, right? That's the anger that kind of just simmers and does give the devil a foothold. 
the idea here is pretty strong for us to think through how do we deal with anger in our community, in our body, in the church itself? How do we deal with it? Yeah. I actually think people are quite angry a lot, like in the church, because I think we don't work through forgiveness. Uh, because part of it is because that evangelical, like, okay, well, I'll talk to God about my forgiveness, but never go to the person that I've actually wronged or, or who's wronged me. Um, and so I think what we do with most when we're sinned against, we just stay away from them or just try to make it go away magically and we just pretend they're not there. Um, so I think that leads to a lot of anger sitting around even though you're not engaged in it, just because you're doing cognitive, you're running away from it. There's no forgiveness, there's no uh, real healing going on. Uh, so I think there's a lot of under-the-surface anger that usually isn't dealt with. Where does our anger come from, by the way? Why do we get angry? What is anger as an emotion? It's, it's about us in some way. Like the how dare you do this to me, or I'm mad because I want this thing to be a certain way. Like, it actually breaks the whole unity of the community we're in. Because we turn inward to focus solely on us and ourselves and our rights and our entitlement and the way we feel and our emotion, and it grows inside of us, and we're not at all doing exactly the things that Christ commanded his disciples to do in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to let go of that entitlement. But this is grave to those who are unified in Christ to be angry. And I think that, you know, let's be honest. We have issues in this group about people who are angry with one another. I have been angry, and we're not dealing with those issues. Krista? Um, I don't really think anger is a problem. I, I don't see it as something that's bad, but I do see it as something that if I am angry about something, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with that anger. And so what I do with that, like I don't want to sin when I am angry. And then I don't know if, this is kind of a question, I don't know if uh, that's a literal, like, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, or if that's more of, like, Paul just saying, like, if you are angry, you need to resolve it as soon as possible. You need to figure out why you're angry and then confront someone if they need to be confronted. I don't know that he means it in the most literal sense, but I believe he means it in the urgent sense, right, that... I mean, what if it's nighttime? Do you have to wait till the next day or, right? Like, it's too late, right? Um, but I think that it's, it's meant to push us into understanding the urgency. Because what he's saying is, like, if you just allow any passage of time, you're allowing that to fester and to become more sin. I, I actually still believe that he is not condoning anger. You know, he's just saying that it's going to happen but he's not giving it license. But he's saying you need to deal with it right away before it turns into further sin. Andrew. I think anger is a, is a major gateway sin that Satan uses. It's an it's a opening up of our bitterness and our looking at ourselves and feeling violated. Um, I don't believe anger itself, like money, is not evil. Anger is not a sin. It's what, how you use anger, how it I think I would only contrast it with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, if you're angry, you've already committed murder. So he seemed to think it was pretty serious in that statement. So I'll just balance it with that. And, and maybe the ultimate question to ask is, why? Because I have more to learn by that than maybe just trying to figure out, is it frustration or anger? Like, for example, when I'm angry with somebody, 
a lot of times because I feel like I deserve something or they've done me wrong, which means that I'm somehow valuing myself in a position that seems to think, you can't do that to me. If I truly looked at that person the way I look at myself, in many cases, I don't know that I could remain angry or that I should have been angry in the first place. It really was because I valued myself above them that thought there's no way you should be able to do that to me without realizing how many times I may have done the same thing to somebody else or not even known about it. And it's almost like when you pursue that to the point where you say, why am I angry with you? And what would happen if I loved you the way I loved myself or esteemed you and thought of you the way that I thought of myself? I'm not sure that I could be angry in this situation. Jeremy. I think uh, what you're saying reminds me of um, how I think we try and write off anger often as it being righteous anger, you know, I have a right to be angry. But I think when we boil it down, like if we look at real life stuff going on, um, the kind of anger and the hatred coming from the right wing over whether it's healthcare or whether it's over immigration, it's really not righteous. It's just, I don't like that someone's taking something away from me that I think I'm entitled to. And what it really comes down to, at least in my view, is a self-centeredness in the sense that I deserve this or this is mine, whether it's, you know, like my tax, taxes are mine, you know, people shouldn't take them from me. And I, and I think it, it only requires a tiny little shift, right, um, to see, to, to kind of self-reflect and see, well, you know what, maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe it's not about what's mine or maybe it's not what about, about what, what I'm entitled to, but what are the people around me entitled to or what belongs to the people around me and that can be an idea it can be a service I mean, it can be any number of things um, and, I, and I see that as um, entitlement and, and a lack of being able to actually look and even on a deeper level if we really believe these things like how everything belongs to God or everything you know, if you throw that element in then it really seems you know, ridiculous that we would say that that kind of anger is righteous because it really isn't yeah, I would agree that um, a lot of the times people's perspective needs to put, be put in to say why they're angry, but I don't, I don't think it's preposterous to say that humans can't experience righteous anger. Like, I think that there are things that in certain situations the church should feel anger about. There's no other word for the way that you should feel about certain injustices that are going on. And so, um, yeah, you really just have to look at it and see where it's coming from. But I don't think it's all anger automatically leads to sin. I think it's the perspective and the actions that almost instantaneously come along with certain types of sin, certain types of anger. I agree with what you said. I will add, though, that a lot of times even what we believe to be righteous anger has motives that are deeper than that that we still need to examine and may never be rid of because we're sinful people. But I know people who will tell you, I hate injustice or I, I hate this practice. There's a part of them where they really are standing up for something that they should stand up for, and there's a part of it that's something very different. There is still that part of us that is not Christ. There's still that part of us that is not fully there yet where we still have to struggle with that. It goes on. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Anyone stealing lately? Raise your hand. Seems like that would be easy, like just don't steal. But look at this. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, 
that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't miss that last part. Why is it that we're supposed to be doing something with our hands? It's not just so that we shouldn't steal, but we should actually work. We should do something with our hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. This is often lost on us. We think we have some strange right to support ourselves and that's it. To barely somehow just make enough to just get by and that somehow we'll be okay. And I often talk to people who I'm challenging where they're at in life and they're kind of like, I'll figure it out somehow, it'll all work out. That may be true for you if you're lucky. But look at the point of this productivity, it's so that they may have something to share with those that are in need. Remember, he's talking out of a model that he's seen in the Acts Church where people shared everything that they had in common. And those people who had gave to those who were in need. So the idea is, if we're really a community, if we're a unified body, it's not enough for us to just make it. Because that means that when one of us is in crisis, or five of us are in crisis, or a whole part of us is in crisis, the rest of us are like, Hey, I'm barely making it. Right. That's sin. That's not the intent. The intent is to be productive enough to provide to the others. If we really are in it together, then there's going to be some days when you're up and there's going to be some days when you're down. And if we really are doing what we're supposed to do, which is sharing with one another everything we have, it's not good enough to say, I'll share everything I got, but I don't got anything. That's not an answer. This harkens to something that Paul said in 2 Thessalonians. It's 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-14. I won't read the whole thing, but this teaching is about idleness. And he basically says that we heard that some of you are idle. And you're not living to the way we taught you. He concludes by saying you shouldn't have anything to do with idle people. If they're not getting it, he says that the one who is unwilling to work shouldn't eat. So Paul has said quite a bit about idleness, but the point is pretty clear here that one of his teachings is for us to be working so that we can provide for one another in this body that we're unified in. Yeah. What I like in that passage, the connection between work and realizing that sometimes when you work, you're, you still are in need. And I don't think it should be lost on us that going back to the previous point, looking at the things we feel entitled to, right, that that also plays a role in this situation. The things that we feel we deserve cause this kind of neediness. Well, to amplify what you're saying, there are going to be some people who fall on the idle side of the scale. And when the community is in need, they will be unable to help. And I hear a lot, it seems to be okay in our society today to say, hey man, I'm doing the best I can, and I can't really help you, my brother. Right? On the other extreme, there are some who are working and doing quite well, but because they use all of the fruits of what they produce for themselves, they're given the same answer. When somebody comes up to them and says, you know, the community's in need, they're like, you know, I don't have anything. The result is the same. They're in it for themselves and themselves only, which means they're not part of the community. 
They're, not, they're only in the community because it's meeting together. They're not part of the community because when someone has need, they'll be able to say, I can give you. And on the other extreme, you've got people who just aren't producing enough, and they're saying the same thing. I can't help you. Paul is really focusing on that, saying, hey, there's a purpose for this work. The purpose is to be able to provide for those who are in need. It goes back to stewardship. Yes, we live off of that which we produce. Not all of it. Hopefully less and less of it all the time. And ultimately we give to those who are in need. First and foremost, right here around you. So there may be somebody sitting right around you who's in need. We're supposed to be able to answer that. Okay? More ethical teaching. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let me repeat this again, because this is the one that I struggle with the most. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's start with a definitional issue. What does unwholesome talk mean? I think my immediate thought went to sarcasm, because it's not necessarily the traditional, oh, you're cursing, but it's definitely not building up of others. And it's something that I struggle with. Okay, Ray? For me, instantly, it's gossip. Talking poorly about others when they're not in your presence or tearing someone down when you are in their presence. It's that which can damage someone else if they ever hear it, even if they don't. Like it's, it's poisonous to a group of people, I think, to have slanderous talk be amongst a group of people. Okay. Words that break the unity bond rises. Anything. And where are you getting that from? Where are you getting that definition from? Wholesome is a unity, unifying word. Okay, because you know, in our in our language today, the connotation of the word unwholesome is kind of like dirty. We've turned wholesome and unwholesome not from the words you're using, as in whole, right? But wholesome has become kind of like you know, it's uh, full of grains and nutrients. Wholesome for you, right? Or it's you know, it's it's wholesome like you know, that's a buzzword for like the way we say, oh, that's approved by the church, you know, like that kind of wholesome, right? <laughs> like it's a it's a wholesome activity, you know. They'll be like, no sex, drugs, or rock and roll. They'll just be like, nice, and they'll be fruit punch and cookies, right? Like that's what wholesome means, right? Mark, I also think that includes being rude or short with someone when you think giving a full response isn't worth your time mm. or your effort. Okay, nobody on the cussing. I mean, Christians these days can't really be Christians unless they cuss once in a while, right? To show their, to show their former pre-saved self-cred, right? Right? Like, you've got to have a little bit of cred to show that, you know, you're still in touch with the world. You might not be of it, but you're still in it, right? I don't really think cussing's a problem. Um, I think it's just, you know, if you drop an F-bomb, that's what you do. I mean, it's, sometimes it's best to find that moment. The thing is, it's not about street crushes. Sometimes it's just the thing you say just because that's, you know, somebody flipped you off or cut you off. And, you know, anyways. Are you saying it's an involuntary thing or it's just that's just what's supposed to happen? No, no, no. That's probably bad. I'm just saying, like, there, I just don't think swearing's an issue. Uh, it doesn't bother me. Well, the only thing I'll say about cussing is, first, I don't believe this is about cussing. Second, 
We're going to see in a moment, though, that the standard for us is the imitation of Christ. So I don't care in one respect. Yeah, let me just say it straight out. I don't care what you think about cussing. Unless Jesus cusses, that's not the standard. Like, you can have your own standard, but it won't be Christ's standard. (laughs) Just so that it's clear on the record. I often picture God playing back parts of Exodus for us later. (laughs) You know, everybody else will get the, come into your master's glory. For us, it'll be like, (laughs) come here. (laughs) Now, this part I really like. Press play, Anthony. (laughs) Here's the question. Do you remember how I started tonight? Remember I started with the couch potato example of the missionary thing and I was making fun of them? Is that unwholesome talk? Am I building them up? Am I tearing them down? I mean, we are one in the body. Right. I feel like it's almost like the damaging thing about some because it's one of those things that Christians go out and do without thinking about it. And it almost brings about that whole part of scripture where Jesus talks about be hot or cold, but don't be somewhere in the middle. Don't be that couch potato who's sitting there pretending to proclaim my name without actually doing it. So maybe that's where it comes from being, being a really bad thing. Come on, be truthful. I think um, at the root of unwholesome talk is kind of viewing oneself above the other person. So... There's a lot of things that I disagree with their approach, but at the same time, at least they're doing something, and uh, hopefully they're learning in the process, like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't the best, or maybe we could do this a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, like, God's the one that judges all of us, so we have to be accountable to God. And I just think that's a really bad ethic, like, at least they're doing something. I mean, like... Like, I feel like we could do, like, I feel like we could do more. Um, And the only thing that comes to mind right now is, like, whether or not couch potato or redneck Christianity or whatever counts as tearing people down, John. um, (laughs) I, like, I look at the, the Old Testament, right? And there are some people in there who have that prophetic voice, and they're, they don't mince words, you know. Now, it, it maybe doesn't sound dangerous or edgy, but I'm sure that if it was Jeremiah or who, whoever these prophets were, right, they were saying stuff in a way that would have been very like, yeah, what you're doing is not good, and what you're doing is, is wrong, and God doesn't desire this for you, and you think you're doing the right thing, and you're really not. And they were kind of like, bam, bam, bam. And they were killed, and da 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 and all these things, right, from the things they said. So um, while I don't necessarily want to encourage you to, to find all these really creative ways to... Okay, I kind of do want to encourage you. I think, I think it's really funny. But the point I'm trying to say is that we should be able to say, yeah, I really think that's a just the wrong way to do it, you know, and... I also think we have incidences in Scripture where people were really kind of in your face about that's that's not that's not a good enough ethic. That's not a good enough uh, way to do things. I need to program your number on my phone so, like, every time I need an elaborate rationalization for my sin, <laughs> I can just call you up and go, "This is what I'm about to do." And then, like, what do you think, AJ? Um, yeah, kind of the same thing was that um, I could see people arguing on the other side of that, saying, oh, well, you know, raise awareness where people can actually see it, and then, I mean, ideally it would hopefully spark an interest to go out and actually do that, but 
considering the population and the way people are, I don't think it does that. So I, I think it has good intention, but not necessarily good results. Okay, Carissa? I was just going to say one little thing, and that was that I think when there are things that we disagree with, like that one, I think there's a way to talk about it where it's kind of like you're speaking the truth in love, like, hey, here's both sides of the thing. Morgan? We know I'm totally off topic, but now I've been around you a while now and I've seen how at times you use jokes or mocking to teach. And so I'm still figuring out the question really is, is that truthing in love? Right? Because it, it is, and in many cases, and you've even taught me through those things, and I've learned a lot from them. Um, but, but the question goes back to is it truthing in love? And I'm, and I'm really wondering, Jeremy's example of the prophets is good because I think at times even the prophets mock. So it's not, you can't simply say mocking is not a lot, you know, but I mean, it gets, I find myself with sarcasm at different things and usually it's not truthing in love. Let's say that very quickly. Okay. Last two comments. Go ahead. I think uh, that's exactly what I was going with is that the prophets didn't go to Judah and say, look what Israel's doing, you know, look, look at them. They went to Israel and said, this is what you were doing. So at the beginning we're talking about education and how the purpose of the church is education. And I personally think that what you did is education. Um, is saying, okay, here's something that's out there. This is what it looks like. This is what we're up against. And yeah, I do think we should go a step further. And if we believe strongly, and I think a lot of us believe that that's a bogus mission aspect, then we should do something about it. I think it does come down to the attitude of our hearts. I mean, by the way, that wasn't coincidental that I just happened to be tripping over these verses today. I mean, I went and found that and thought, let me see if we do that, would anybody stop me, and then how would it look like later? But I do that all the time. By the way, some of you have hit the target incorrectly, I think, in my mind. Like, I'm not actually making fun of the organization. I'm making fun of us. I mean, there's a little bit of truth in that, that we would like to stay back and sit in our chairs and clap and cry and laugh instead of actually hitting the mission field. I can prove that because we're all here most of the time. I think there is something to the fact that there are so many of us who would invade a village and bring a film crew and think that would be normal. So it's really more as holding a mirror up for us. But the reason I did it, and the reason I brought it up tonight was I was trying to think, like, we do this all the time. I do this all the time. In trying to teach, we do have to watch the attitudes and the motivations. The most dangerous one of all is the one where you are actually tearing down the other person without any building up. In fact, you're just tearing them down. I mean, it's not really to build up. There's a lot of the stuff that I do and the things that I say that are somewhat provocative is to build up our body. And then there's other times when, no, this is just funny. Let's just make fun of it. And that's the difference. It's the attitude of our heart. It's the motivation behind it. Am I trying to build up? A lot of times I am. A lot of times I'm trying to say things that will like actually stick in our minds. Or I'm saying things in a way you've never seen them. That Yeah, they're funny at first, but all things that you haven't really thought about sometimes are funny because they catch us off guard, but then we kind of remember them. There's other times when now we're just going for a cheap laugh or something we can poke fun at or a feeling of superiority like we're better than those guys. And that's when we are clearly not building up the body. And let me call it out straight. That's when I'm sinning. And you have that responsibility, too, to say, like, is that really building people up? Kind of a little bit of a stunt. 
one that's actually contextually accurate, since this is really talking about speech that tears us down. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I've heard this passage taken a hundred different ways. You know, that's grieving the Holy Spirit. What is grieving the Holy Spirit? What are we doing in this case? Remember, we've said the Holy Spirit becomes the mark of our adoption, the mark that we're sealed with, the mark that we've been called. It's a deposit that we get to claim. Like we are adopted sons and daughters of God. Like all these things go against the very thing that is marked and is, resides within us. So what he's saying is that God, the Holy Spirit himself, has marked you. It's the sign of your adoption. It's the deposit of your future glory, all these great things. And yet when we do these things, we grieve the very one who is there to be our salvation, to be our deposit, to be our help. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This would be the place to bring up the Lord's Prayer. It's very clear, especially in the line that follows in the editorial on the Lord's Prayer. Like, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Within the body, this is so important. Are we really unified? Do you really believe that? Are you holding grudges? Are we really compassionate to one another? Do we forgive one another? Do we actually go to somebody and say, I need your forgiveness? We know the answer. (laughs) Rarely does this ever happen. But this is the standard we're supposed to be held to. This standard flows right out of the fact that we're one body and we're unified. I don't think we think of the church that way. Let's be honest. I think we think of the church as a thing I go to. It's a thing I might belong to, sort of. Maybe I'll be a member. Maybe I'll just go because it's like every week at this time I go at that point. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about us being one, unified in the body. So all this stuff doesn't make sense. It makes sense if you're just there programmatically. It makes sense if you're just there like as a, as, a, as a member of some organization. You don't have to like people if you go to school. You can go to school with people you don't like. You can go to work with people you don't like. You can be in a family that you don't like. But it's hard to be one body that is not compassionate, that has all this bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. He would just say it's impossible. And I think that what we've said probably most times is, yeah, it's probably not possible. That's why I just belong to this building. Finally, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 